And many of you have received a flyer when you entered this building. And tonight's topic is how to optimize your learning, memory, and creativity. Tomorrow, um, we will also be hearing several topics starting at 8.15 in the morning, 11 in the morning, and then in the afternoon, we have two presentations. You do not want to miss any of them. But before we introduce our speaker, and Dan Houghton will be introducing him tonight, I would like to invite you to pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to share this time together. We thank you for the ministry of Dr. Neil Nedley, and we ask your Holy Spirit to speak through him. We ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sam. It's nice to see all of your smiling faces out there tonight. I want you to know that um, it's been about 12 or 13 years since Dr. Nedley was last here in our church with us. He came and did a weekend for us back when Pastor Peter Neary was our pastor a long time ago. And it's been too long. And uh, I have been talking with him for maybe six, eight months. Said, uh, Dr. Nedley, when can we get you on our calendar? And he called me about maybe two months ago maybe two and a half, and he said, hey, early September, I've got this weekend that's available, and I called Pastor Sam and said, yes, we're going to do this, and uh, I know that you are going to be blessed this weekend. Uh, Dr. Nedley, in addition to um, all the things that you've read about, and I'm going to highlight a few of those, he's also a pilot, and I want you to know that he has already had a lot of things going on up in Sacramento today, and he flew his own plane down here. I picked him up at French Valley, and we just got here a few minutes ago, and he's ready to go again. So um, uh, I consider uh, Dr. Nedley to be a very good friend. He and his wife and Erica, I don't see Erica in here. She may be out on the phone with her son or one of the kids. But Erica, his wife, is here with him for this weekend. You'll want to get acquainted with her. Uh, Dr. Nedley has been practicing as an internal medicine physician. That's the baseline. And he's had a, his practice has been primarily in Ardmore, Oklahoma, for a number of years. Until maybe, what, about two years ago? Two, three years ago? Um, made the move to, uh, up to Auburn, near Auburn, Washington, to Weimar Institute, where he is the president of Weimar Institute, which is a combination of a lifestyle, uh, uh, lifestyle in-house lifestyle program called Weimar Institute, as well as a college where they train um, specifically. They've gotten into some really successful programs with, with pre-med and with nursing. Now, correct me, Dr. Nedley, last year you had 13 pre-med students. Is that right at Weimar College? I believe so. Well, here's what's fascinating. I stopped and, and had breakfast with him back in March when I was coming through uh, from Walla Walla down. And they have an incredible thing going on there. 13 of their entire pre-med application, and I'm remembering this specifically, all 13 were accepted into medical school. That is a phenomenal thing for a brand new program. Plus, they have a school of nursing that is uh, specifically geared towards uh, uh, towards lifestyle medicine, which you're going to be hearing a lot about. And, of course, with Dr. Youngberg here, uh, with this church is very familiar with the concept of lifestyle medicine. We're very proud to have uh, the Youngberg Lifestyle Clinic here. And he and Dr. Nedley are friends, so you'll see a friendly face out there you know right away, Dr. Nedley. But in any event, one of the things that he has focused on from the internal medicine base has been looking at the mind and, and how depression works, how mind health is. 
And uh, in addition to many other things, if you look in here, you'll see that, you know, he really works hard in lifestyle medicine, gastroenterology, mental health, but particularly looks at the hard-to-diagnose patient. And that's been one of his specialties. And as a result of that creativity, he's gone deep into the libraries, has uh, done some major work, and has a very successful in-house depression recovery program uh, there at Weimar Institute. Plus, his program has been set up so it can be done in many local locations. And I don't know how many. You'll have to tell the group how many different de depression recovery programs have gone on around the world. But this weekend, we're talking about a healthy mind. We're happy to have Dr. Neil Nedley here, and I'd like to invite you to welcome him just now as we begin our program. Thank you. It's good to be back in Fallbrook after all these years. It doesn't seem that long ago. Uh, time has a way of flying uh, as well, and uh, it is uh, amazing to see uh, the changes that have taken place, even in regards to the research on depression and anxiety, as well as on optimizing your brain. Uh, it is um, very clear, uh, there was a, um, a study, well, let's see if I have it here. Um, well, let's get into the definition of intelligence. But one of the things that is occurring in our society today is that many people are going to college and getting degrees, but they're not improving in their intelligence. They're not improving in their creativity. They're not improving in their critical thinking skills. And it's been well documented. Richard Aram, if you want to write this name down, Richard Aram, Academically Adrift is the name of the book. It's a very instructional book. But he looks at the Ivy League schools, the best higher education schools that we have. And he found out that a majority of students were getting degrees but were actually not improving in their intellectual abilities. And uh, this is a sad situation because from age 18 to 22, your intelligence should go up if you're doing nothing but farming because your frontal lobe is still developing. And so what's actually stunting them is the question, because in reality, the brain should continue to grow and prosper up until at least age 30. And even after age 30, we can improve our circulation and activity of the brain by certain um, lifestyle habits. And of course, who we are, if someone asks the question, who are you, what are they talking about? They're actually not talking about your eyes. They're not talking about your feet. They're not talking about your nose. Those are all part of you. But when they're asking the question, who are you, what are they talking about? They're actually talking about your brain. What is right up there? And the nice thing about the brain is it can be wonderfully transformed into working far better than it normally does. And uh, of course, it, it, pay, it, it uh, requires attention to detail. Every year at Weimar Institute, in fact, we would like to invite every one of you to Weimar Institute. In February of uh, the third weekend in February, we have an, an emotional intelligence summit. And this is continuing education. Uh, it's good for physicians, psychologists, it's good for um, people that have been running our depression and anxiety recovery programs or people that have gone through the programs. 
or anyone that's just interested about uh, recent brain research. But this year, uh, we have um, a Mass General psychiatrist. Uh, Massachusetts General is one of the top hospitals in the nation. I don't know how many of you have heard of New England Journal of Medicine, but that's where it comes from, out of Mass General, and they always have uh, it is one of my favorite journals because they always have a very difficult to diagnose case from Mass General that they present every week and they give you the data and then you have to figure out what is wrong with the patient and then you have to go to another place in the journal to see um, what actually was wrong and, uh, and it really helps your diagnostic skills. But um, he was uh, awarded the top psychiatrist of the nation in 2016 because of his work in neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity basically means that the brain can change. It actually can be reformed. And uh, he'll be uh, telling us that a lot of the positive or negative changes that can take place in the brain are a result of our behaviors. Our behaviors can actually change our brain. And uh, he's particularly going to go into uh, several behaviors that can dramatically augment and improve the brain. Uh, and uh, we also have other great speakers, one of them, Barbara Aerosmith-Young, who is known as the woman who changed her brain. She was a special ed student and could, it, could not make it through high school. And she realized something was dramatically wrong with her brain because she was trying. And so she began to do the research in her limited way, and she found out there was a lot of things that she could do, and she put forward her research in her own life, and her own brain began to change dramatically. And now she's actually a neuroscientist, and she's known as the woman who changed her brain, and she's come out with programs for special ed educational institutions to help people who are very mentally challenged to be able to change their brain in a positive way. And if those brains can change in a positive way, your brain can also change in a positive way as well. So let's take a look at the definition of intelligence. The definition of intelligence, of course, there's several definitions. I should mention we have an agency of the government that has that word in it. Do you know what that agency is? It's called the Central Intelligence Agency. It's the CIA. But it's not talking about intelligence like this. It's talking about intelligence as a basis of knowledge in regards to, you know, threat, threatening, you know, uh, countries that might be threatening to the United States and learning some of their secrets and what they're going to be up to and that sort of thing. And so that's talking about learning about um, secrets of other places, and to them that's intelligence, it's knowledge that might be helpful. But the actual definition of intelligence is not just knowledge. It's actually, um, if you, we want to get specific, this is called fluid intelligence. Uh, and fluid intelligence is your capacity to learn, retain, and apply new knowledge. And this is something that unfortunately, Richard Aram and others have discovered that most adults after age 18 don't improve in this area. At age 30, they've gone through college, they've even gotten PhDs, they've gotten jobs, they know they're a whole lot smarter, and they take an IQ test that measures fluid intelligence, and it's no better. Now, it should have improved. 
it should be better, but fortunately, there are things that you can do today to improve this. And uh, the reason why it doesn't is because our typical American lifestyle um, doesn't lend necessarily to the best methods of improving our ability to learn, retain, and apply new knowledge. Now, that sounds pretty simple, to be able to learn and retain it. By the way, some people think memory has nothing to do with intelligence. That's not true. Notice, you not only have to learn, you have to do what else? You have to retain it. And then, it's not just learning and retaining, you have to be able to apply that knowledge. Uh, and that's where uh, things like creativity can come into play. Now, IQ, or intelligence, is often measured by an IQ test. Uh, and the IQ tests are about the most accurate way that we know of as far as taking a test and measuring your intelligence. But there are uh, better ways. You know, if you have experts in intelligence that can interact with an individual, they'll actually estimate their intelligence far better than any IQ test will do it. The problem with the IQ test is 10% of individuals will score quite high on the IQ test, and they're, they're not near that intelligent. They're just good test takers. And then there are other individuals who will score low in an IQ test, and they're actually very highly intelligent. And so um, the tests are, are, are helpful, but they're not across the board a good measure. In fact, I was in a place uh, not too long ago uh, where an individual um, um, daughter came to me and said, I want my dad to take an IQ test. Um, but he is really embarrassed because he uh, feels inferior because he's never gotten an education beyond high school. Now, I knew this gentleman. This gentleman um, was um, someone who had been able to put the information that he did know and also learn additional information and come up with creative, very creative ways of putting this information together and actually become a multimillionaire several times over with different ways of putting his creativity together. And says, you know, he doesn't think he's very smart because he's never made it through school. And he also had a little dyslexia uh, as well. And I told him, don't give him an IQ test. Uh, and the reason why is that's very likely one that would underestimate his IQ. He's got dyslexia, he's got those issues, but in reality, we know that he's got a very high IQ uh, because of what he's been able to accomplish and what he has put together that no one else ever even thought of in doing in that way, and it was very useful to um, other people. So your intelligence is related somewhat to academic performance, but not as much as you might think. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence, and your emotional intelligence is more related to your GPA than your IQ. Have you run across people who are quite smart but have not done very well in school? That's because they don't have the motivation, and motivation is part of EQ. But it is um, uh, related, and there are advantages to having intelligence. In fact, college graduates' first job after graduation has been found to be related to their IQ. This is why often when we run Just optim Optimize Your Brain programs, we will have very successful parents bringing their teenage kids and putting them on the front row because they want their kids to be able to get into Ivy League schools and excel in those schools. And if they do, right out of college, they're much more likely to get a six-figure uh, income job, and they can be set up 
for success where they're no longer dependent on their parents. Uh, but there are um, additional um, advantages of higher intelligence. You're more efficient in studying. Is that useful? Absolutely, it's helpful because you can actually live a balanced life even when you're in a very intense school, like medical school. Uh, my son is currently in medical school. And uh, just like when I was in medical school, you run across students who are studying all day and all night before tests, staying up with caffeine, having very imbalanced lives. They're not on an exercise program. They're sacrificing all of this so that they can learn this huge amount of material that's really impossible to be able to learn. But if you're on a good program, you can be like him and like myself as well. Uh, he actually learned this uh, from me, where you actually go to bed at 9 o'clock at night before your major tests. And uh, you can uh, be on an early-to-bed, early-to-rise program, and it actually helps your academics. I remember when I was in medical school, my fellow students would think I was crazy because I was going to bed early, and I had been in their place where they were testing me, and, and uh, I didn't seem to know the material any better than they did. And so they would stay up to be able to cram all this material in, and then the next day on the test, um, they would see their results not as good as my results, and they would say, how in the world did you do that? But in reality, it was due to the lifestyle that I had begun to participate in. I didn't know about this first when I started college, but I started to learn about these things where my brain was actually able to be more efficient and be able to think and uh, particularly uh, when it was um, uh, questioned in ways that you didn't anticipate how they were going to question it, and you had to utilize your frontal lobe to uh, analyze things. So efficient in studying is very helpful. More creative. Creativity, we'll talk about this, but uh, there are those experts that look at IQ and they say you have to have an above-average IQ to be truly creative. And um, we'll get into that in a little bit. You're more logical when your IQ goes up. You're more persuasive. Your influence also increases. And you're also more likely to become wealthy, if that's a priority. For many people, wealth, you know, that of the high IQ people, wealth isn't even in the top 10 priority list. So you can be poor and still have a very high IQ. Uh, but if it is a high priority, and you're able to come up with things that are original and useful to others, that's how you go from the lowest socioeconomic status to the highest socioeconomic status within a few um, years. Another advantage, this was, all, this was described by Harvard University. They looked at a large group of men and women starting in 1922, and uh, the uh, analysis, um, or I should say the data, uh, was there up until 1986, so it was a long-term uh, study. And the researchers found that up to the cutoff point of 163. Now, what's the average IQ? Average IQ is 100, and for those of you that are into math and statistics, every 10 points is a standard deviation. So 110 would be a standard deviation above the mean, 120, two standard deviations above the mean. When you're six and a half standard deviations above the mean, that's 99.99 percentile. So that's an extremely high IQ. 
and so that was the cutoff point, participants' risk of dying during a given period decreased as their IQ increased. For example, those with a childhood IQ of 150, which is very intelligent, had a 44% lower risk of death than those with an IQ of 135. So every 15-point rise in IQ, you're dramatically improving your longevity. And prior to this, we didn't realize that IQ was related to longevity and how long you're able to live, and it also has to do somewhat with the quality of life. Now you can see they published this study in November of 2005, uh, the American School of Public Health, and, but it was still a very um, useful data, and it's interesting to look at the discussion of this paper, because in the discussion they're trying to figure out why is it that IQ is related to longevity. And we're going to find out at least one reason here today. There's actually two reasons that have surfaced since 2005 in regards to IQ being related to longevity. Now, intelligence involves all of the lobes of your brain. Um, it does involve the temporal lobe. This is where your memory is centered. There's a particular memory portion in the temporal lobe called the hippocampus uh, that can actually expand and work better um, through different behavioral uh, types of techniques. And uh, this can actually improve um, your ability to remember. And of course, there's some nutritional things that are related to this as well. Having enough omega-3, for instance, and enough uh, norepinephrine is also important. Occipital lobe has to do with not only your vision, but your visual spatial orientation, which also has to do with IQ and your architectural ability. Uh, the parietal lobe has to do with calculation, division, subtraction, and also uh, vocabulary as well as learning a new language. And so um, your parietal lobe would expand if you began to learn a new language and were getting proficient in it. Einstein gave his brain to science, and we found out that his parietal lobe was a little larger than most other human beings. The cerebellum is where our coordination is centered, and when teams get together to compete, they're actually um, demonstrating which team has the most corporately functional cerebellum at the time of the event. They don't realize that's what they're doing, but that is precisely what they're doing. And uh, then the area where both intelligence, regular intelligence, and emotional intelligence come together is in the frontal lobe of the brain. This is an area that's particularly important in regards to expanding your creativity as well as your focus and concentration. So where in the brain does emotional intelligence and general intelligence come together? It is indeed in the frontal lobe of the brain. Now, Scientific studies, this is what Guyton's textbook of physiology says, scientific studies show the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and also the will. So when we see a decline in morality in an individual or in a society, um, it will be easily explained by a decline in function of the frontal lobe of the brain. Uh, and uh, one of the, the concerns that I have in America today um, is the fact that spirituality, as far as church attendance and as far as reading spiritual material and those type of things, is actually not going up in this country. It's going down uh, rather considerably. And uh, this is one of the reasons why um, the ability to think outside the box is also 
uh, being affected. And so, uh, uh, but this is an area that's often neglected, uh, is the frontal lobe of the brain. It's also where our willpower is centered and our ability to have self-control actually is there in the frontal lobe. If the frontal lobe is not working well, you're not going to be able to uh, control yourself in a number of different ways. Now, uh, animals also have brains, of course. And uh, when I was in high school biology, I had to dissect a cat. And uh, I was surprised at how small that cat brain was in relationship to the skull of the, the cat. But what I didn't realize then, learned it later, only 3.5% of a cat brain is in the frontal lobe. Not much morality in a cat. If you've seen it torture its victims to death and enjoy the process. Uh, actually, anyone who enjoys torture, it's a sign of serious frontal lobe compromise. There's no way you can enjoy that unless your frontal lobe is seriously um, uh, defective, really, at least at that point. Dogs have a little more frontal lobe. 7% of their brain is in the frontal lobe. They're not the most moral creatures in the world. They will um, not hesitate to murder if they have to, but they do it much more mercifully. They're not into torture. And they also have the ability to empathize with others. They are concerned about how their owner is feeling and uh, how their uh, owner is doing, uh, where a cat um, doesn't really have that type of empathy. Um, you could be having a terrible day, and the cat doesn't really care one way or the other. Uh, and uh, chimpanzees have the most of any other animal species. 17% of their brain is in the frontal lobe. But what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom is our frontal lobe size. 33 up to 38% of the human brain is in the frontal lobe. And this is what gives us the ability to accomplish advanced planning and thinking. Gives us the ability to choose our own destiny and actually accomplish great and uh, wonderful things. Now when the frontal lobe goes down, you will see these effects pretty much across the board. There will be an impairment of moral principle that occurs. Also, social impairment. And by the way, social impairment is occurring much more commonly in our society today. Um, social phobias are at an all-time high. Attachment disorders are at an all-time high. Uh, and, uh, and there are reasons for this that we'll point out tomorrow when we get to the mental illness side of things. But uh, uh, where the reasons tend to surface is in regards to frontal lobe suppression. When the frontal lobe goes down, that natural love for family can also go away. It's natural to love your family members. When that natural love for family goes away, it can be a frontal lobe issue. Lack of foresight occurs. Our ability to reason from cause to effect is a frontal lobe phenomena. And our ability to be able to accurately predict the future uh, based on what is happening now. And uh, that, of, of course, requires a frontal lobe. This is why my father used to have this saying, there are people with 20 years experience, and then there's other people with one year's experience 20 times over. Those with one year's experience 20 times over, that is really a frontal lobe deficit. They're not learning from their past mistakes, uh, and they tend to repeat them as well and they're not having that foresight and being able to put things together uh, and figure them out per se. Abstract reasoning is impaired. Uh, you will have concrete reasoning if you don't have a frontal lobe, uh, but abstract reasoning is not there. What's the difference? 
Uh, I remember I was speaking at a Texas high school uh, a few years ago uh, when I was living there in Oklahoma. They had me speak to, on career day to the entire big high school there in the Dallas, Texas area. And uh, those high schools are so big, they have policemen roaming the aisles when they bring all these kids together and those sorts of things. And uh, so I was um, on their career day. They wanted me to speak about the frontal lobe because if you want to have a good career and choose wisely for a career, you need to have a frontal lobe that's working. And so I was doing a little test. I said, tell me what this proverb means. People that live in glass houses should not throw stones. And one kid raised his hand right away, and he says, if you do that, you'll break your house. Now, that's called concrete reasoning. That's not the interpretation of the proverb. I, another kid raised his hand, said pretty much the same thing. A third kid raised his hand, said something a little different, but it still wasn't the interpretation. Finally, one kid in the back makes his way up slowly to the microphone and says, if you don't want to be picked on, you better not pick on somebody else. So that was the abstract reasoning. That was his teenage vernacular way of saying it, but I mentioned that, yes, you have it. It's correct. And the tremendous applause broke out for this young boy that had a better frontal lobe than the rest of them. Uh, but uh, then I asked them a, uh, a question. How many of you think your parents would have been able to get that right? What do you think in Texas? What percent of hands went up? Actually, about 90% of the hands went up. The hands all shot up. And I said, I think you're right. I think your parents would have been able to get that right. And I then told them it takes 30 years for the frontal lobe to be fully developed in human beings, structurally. And if they didn't understand that, there's a whole lot of other things in life they had no clue about. And so they needed to rely upon the wisdom of their parents um, for quite a bit longer um, in, uh, in life. A mathematical understanding is greatly um, diminished when the frontal lobe goes down. Now, you can do calculation, division, subtraction, but higher forms of math that require logic and require um, you know, higher forms of algebra, for instance, calculus, require the frontal lobe of the brain. Loss of empathy is something we'll see across the board. I don't know if you've heard the, the statement, um, there's no way that you can understand what she is going through unless you've walked in her shoes. Have you heard that? Is that a true statement or a false statement? Actually, it's true only for those who don't have a well-functioning frontal lobe. There's no way they'll be able to understand it unless they've walked in her shoes. But studies have shown that if you have a very good, well-functioning frontal lobe, you'll just hear about what she went through and you will feel precisely the same emotion. And the areas of the brain will light up in exactly, precisely the same way in regards to having um, compassion and, um, and even either outrage or sadness in regards to a particular situation. And uh, that, of course, is a good thing because it can allow us to be able to help out individuals um, in situations uh, like that. And so um, uh, empathy is something that is only able to be performed on a broad scale by those who have intact frontal lobes. Lack of restraint will occur when the frontal lobe goes down. And so you'll have boasting, hostility, uh, these types of things uh, being very commonplace. Now when the frontal lobe goes up, one of the things we'll see improve is creativity. 
Sometimes this is called ingenuity. And there is two essential components needed for this. Being original, that means no one else has come up with this before. And no one else has put maybe together. There might be some things that others have put together, but you're putting it together in a completely unique and different way. And also that originality is adaptive, meaning that it makes a positive contribution to the life of others. Now, in today's society, we have a lot of individuals who consider themselves to be creative, but really they're just bizarre. <laughs> they do very strange things, but it's not useful to anybody. Uh, and they'll even film themselves on YouTube doing these strange things and then uh, make it look like they're being highly creative. Uh, but in reality, it's not really helping anyone except for those um, who have IQ similar to them who seem to be interested in their bizarreness uh, and watch these things on YouTube. Uh, but that's not uh, really what we're talking about in regards to creativity. This is something that's going to be very useful to you or particularly to others. Interest will also go up. And it's fun to interact with someone who is intrigued by everything. People that have uh, well-functioning frontal lobes tend to be quite enjoyable to be around because they actually enjoy learning and they enjoy um, new things. In fact, um, the book Character, Strengths, and Virtues, who talks about this interest as if curiosity can be cultivated, which it can, by strengthening the frontal lobe, no one need ever search for interesting experiences one will simply have them. I'll give you a more um, a significant example, but if I sentenced someone to be in this room after the meeting is over with tonight, and you had to be here for hours on end, you didn't know when you were going to be done, and it wasn't your bedtime, if you had an intact frontal lobe, you'd be maybe upset at first and think you're being treated unfairly, not sure why it's happening, but pretty soon you'd begin to study something in this room that would be highly interesting to you. And it was time for you to go, you were not sure you want to go because you're in the midst of studying something that's highly interesting. And this is what will happen with individuals with uh, very good intact frontal lobes. And one of the, um, the banes of our society today is that boredom is at an all-time high. You know, individuals think they have to distract themselves repeatedly in order to avoid boredom and that is something that actually is a sign that the frontal lobe is not working well and needs to be enhanced. Because, um, well, as mentioned, uh, when you have an intact frontal lobe, you're going to be curious about things where you don't have to try to get on some sort of stimulating screen in order to um, no longer be bored. In addition, your judgment will go up. Critical thinking will go up. Rationality, and of course this Feels good when you have that. It leads to good decisions and a coherent view of the world. Love of learning will also go up. Wisdom as well. Wisdom is the comprehension of what is true or right, coupled with optimum judgment as to action. These are all frontal lobe aspects. We mentioned empathy going up. Kindness will also go up as the frontal lobe goes up, as well as social intelligence, uh, an area that's also under attack um, in our society today. Now, there are ways in which we can impair the frontal lobe. Easy ways to impair it are illicit drugs. Uh, so whether it's meth, whether it's cocaine, whether it's narcotics, whether it's the benzodiazepines, the Xanax, the Ativans, um, whether it's um, you know, whatever re recreational drug uh, that's out there, they all have one characteristic that's common among them, and that is they suppress the frontal lobe of the brain. 
And uh, this, of course, uh, might produce some short-term um, levels of feeling different, but, uh, and some people are searching for this so-called so magical feeling, uh, but in reality, it's producing a long-term problem. Even some prescription drugs, we mentioned some of them, Xanax, Ativan, and those type of things, uh, can make you feel, quotes at peace with the world when you start taking them, but you're, the consequence is the frontal lobe actually going down. That's why we always have to weigh the benefits versus the risks. Uh, by the way, uh, for those of you, I'm sure we have a representative group here tonight where some of you are taking these medicines. Uh, the good news is that you can get off these medicines. They are addictive, uh, but our studies show, in fact, if you look up Eddie Ramirez and my name, you'll be able to see um, how just a simple eight-week educational program will be able to help you to be able to easily get off of these benzos and then you can start getting your frontal lobe back, and that can be advantageous, and you won't go into anxiety and panic as a result of getting off it, which is what would happen if you did stop it abruptly without doing some things to optimize your brain. Unfortunately, uh, for many Californians, uh, pot use has been shown to lower IQ. Massive four-decade study published in 2012 by the National Academy of Sciences entitled Persistent Cannabis Users Showed Neuropsychological Decline from Childhood to Midlife. Followed more than 1,000 subjects from birth until age 38. The researcher's core finding, repeated marijuana use lowers IQ actually permanently. And uh, it also lowers motivational levels uh, and emotional intelligence, particularly self-control and motivation, go down to extremely low levels. And unfortunately, our country has taken a very short-sighted view of this because they say, if we can legalize it, we can tax it, and if we can tax it, we can start making up our deficits. But if you legalize it, it usage is going to increase. Um, it's very clear, you know, in 1880, many states legalized tobacco usage, and by 1950, it went from 1% of people utilizing it in 1880 to 50% of people utilizing it in 1950. And as the usage goes up of this, and motivation goes down, and EQ goes down, what do you think gross national product will do? It will go down, and employment will go down, and real successful employment goes down. And so that means income taxes will be adversely affected. Revenue coming in from income taxes will go down, and then we have to pay more welfare and more food stamps and more of those type of things. And in reality, that short-term gain from the taxes, we end up decimating ourselves because of the long-term problems in regards to increased marijuana usage. And just in the last few years, marijuana usage has increased to 33% of individuals who use it occasionally now. It's almost as many smokers. Um, so their um, smoking and marijuana rates are, are about identical um, right now in this country. And um, uh, the, um, the solution, of course, you hear about all this, um, um, you know, the fact that marijuana isn't that bad, it's not really addictive, not true. We have individuals go through our program, and it is, you get withdrawal symptoms. If you're smoking 18 joints a day and you stop abruptly, you're going to have nausea and vomiting, you're going to have headaches, you're going to feel terrible, you're going to have significant withdrawal symptoms. 
And uh, fortunately, if you go to a program like ours, you won't have as many of those because we're able to help you with the hydrotherapy and the other types of things um, that, that occur. But um, we're, um, we're very short-sighted often when we're um, looking at um, this marijuana craze that's taken over our society. There are also legal drugs that impair. Alcohol, of course, um, suppresses the frontal lobe before it affects any other portion of the brain. And uh, if you were to drive at the legal limit of alcohol intoxication in the state of California, and a policeman pulled you over, would you be able to walk a straight line? Anyone? You actually could. You're intoxicated, um, or right at that border of the legal limit, and the policeman pulls you out, has you do all these cerebellar tests, and you can do them fine. So why is it then that you're 10 times as likely to get into an automobile accident? It's not, not the reaction time. The reaction time is so good. And uh, there's a baseball player that plays for the Detroit Tigers that's demonstrated this. He's been most valuable player a couple times, Miguel Cabrera. And, but they say the most difficult feat in all of sports is to be able to hit a curveball out of a baseball park. And he has taken several drinks, and he's at that legal limit, and he will hit home runs. And the rest of the players all worship him because they're saying, what a great player. He can even do this with all this alcohol on board. But why is it that Miguel Cabrera is over 10 times as likely to get into an automobile accident on his way home from Tiger Stadium? It's actually not his reaction time. It's his judgment. And that's what happened to Princess Di's driver. No one recognized he was drunk. He was conversing normally. Nobody uh, realized that anything was wrong, but he attempted to negotiate a turn in a tunnel in Paris that was impossible to negotiate. The best race car driver in the world would not have been able to execute that turn at that speed. And thus, he lost his life. Others lost their life as well. Now, had he not gotten into an accident, the next day, would he have been able to drive an automobile successfully? Yeah, once alcohol is out of the system, he would have. But let me ask you this. Does it take critical thinking to drive an automobile successfully? It actually does not. Otherwise, we wouldn't allow 16-year-olds to do it. Uh, <laughs> it does require um, some judgment, but not critical thinking. But where critical thinking plays a role is... Once alcohol is on board, it takes 30 days for your critical thinking to come back to the way it was beforehand. And so the more finer points of frontal lobe function deteriorate significantly and for prolonged periods of time. Now, where does that play a role? That plays a role when you're flying a jumbo jet from Rio de Janeiro to Paris, it's night, you're in instrument conditions, and one of your instruments goes bad. It happened not long ago. Those pilots had seven minutes to figure out which instrument was going bad. And you know, when it comes to these instruments in flying the airplane, there's only six of them in regards to the importance in instrument conditions. And you are trained in your training to try to recognize which one is going bad and to not pay attention to the one that's going bad, and you still have enough of the other 
that you can actually get it out of trouble. And there were three pilots, seven minutes to figure it out, and they tail-stalled this thing all the way into the ocean, and they all died. They had all had alcohol within a week of that, and quite a bit of alcohol, and their critical thinking was down. That requires critical thinking to be able to accomplish that. That's more than just judgment. But for every pilot who's looked at that, it's pretty obvious that if their critical thinking was there, they should have been able to figure out at least in three minutes, at least in four minutes. But they never did figure it out. So one of the questions, in fact, the FAA would be wise. They're looking at this, but they realize pilots are in short supply, and it might make them in shorter supply. Uh, but they're looking at, we should really extend this no drinking policy before um, they're flying a plane. Now, if you're just flying it from point A to point B and everything is fine, you can do that if you've had alcohol two days ago. But if you're in that type of situation, uh, that's a whole new ball game, and that's not just flying it from point A to point B successfully with weather and, and conditions that are right. And so really what you're paying your pilot for is for the, the things that go wrong in that airplane during flight and to be able to get you there safely. So when alcohol has a role to play there, it has a role to play in a number of other things that we do in life as well, and one of the reasons why it's best to abstain from it. Nicotine has a more subtle effect, but it also suppresses the frontal lobe of the brain. And the most commonly consumed drug in America also suppresses the frontal lobe. Anyone want to guess what it is? It ends in I-N-E, just like nicotine, meaning it is a drug, and it actually is caffeine. Uh, caffeine actually is a stimulant. It blocks acetylcholinesterase, an enzyme, so it makes more acetylcholine available. This is why people feel stimulated under the influence of caffeine. Pavlov studied this out. Typists type a little bit faster under the influence of caffeine, but they make 10 times as many errors. And caffeine also has a role to play in regards to frontal lobe suppression. Adenosine is used extensively in the frontal lobe. It blocks the adenosine receptors. And it can actually cause some significant issues. One article called it the silent killer of emotional intelligence. And it had quite a bit of data and information. It's one of the reasons why when people come to our program, we actually put them on a caffeine-free program. And uh, you might cringe at that because you think you're going to have headaches or feel like a zombie. Uh, you can get over it rather readily, uh, particularly with the hydrotherapy and the other, program, or the other aspects of the program. And then your energy level will go up. Many people think, well, I have to have it because without them, I'm a zombie. And so Bristol University looked at this, and they found measurements showed that caffeine users post-caffeine levels of alertness were actually no higher than non-caffeine consumers who received a placebo, suggesting caffeine only brings coffee drinkers back up to normal. When you consume it regularly, you actually make far less acetylcholine, just as much as your acetylcholinesterase enzyme is blocked. It's called downregulation. And so in other words, all the reported benefits of caffeine are present virtually all day and only in those who don't consume it. The reason why you feel like a zombie is because you're undergoing withdrawal <laughs> symptoms. It's not because you have a caffeine deficiency. It's not a vitamin that you need. 
that's part of uh, you know, the, the way regular uh, enzymes and, and body uh, functions work. And uh, it is something that uh, a lot of people you know, consider this to be completely harmless. By the way, ca did you know caffeine kills multiple people every year in this country? The news media doesn't report it much. But if you were to go down to your local convenience store, you could probably buy something called caffeine powder. Have you heard of it? Caffeine powder is just caffeine. It looks like salt. And people do it as a stimulant. You know, Red Bull isn't enough anymore, and so you have to get more caffeine. And do you know how much caffeine is in a cup of coffee? Starbucks? Anyone know the milligrams? It's about 100 milligrams, that's right. How much do you think is in a teaspoon of caffeine powder? 2,400 milligrams. And so, uh, finally, someone is talking about it, although the media suppressed it again. There was a 19-year-old kid. He was having a drive all night, and the Red Bull wasn't enough for him. He was falling asleep. And so he pulled over, and he saw this caffeine powder advertised. It didn't look, didn't look like very much for, to him. So he put a teaspoon in water and drank it down. And his heart went crazy. Tachyarrhythmias, went into congestive heart failure, had to go to an ICU. And when you have caffeine doing that to your heart, there's nothing that we can do to block the effects. There's no, you know, beta blocker will block the effects of adrenaline. But caffeine is not adrenaline. It's a whole different molecule. And so um, the heart is being beat to death from this caffeine. And um, the kid died um, within 24 hours. And uh, I've uh, had patients that have lost their life as a result of this caffeine powder as well. So his mother is trying to get the FDA to ban it. Uh, but they haven't because they want the perception out there that caffeine is a harmless drug and it's not really all that bad. Uh, but in those type of doses, it really will kill. In lower doses, it's going to produce some measurable effects that aren't the best. By the way, that study showing that if you want to be stimulated all day long, not have the peaks and the valleys, that was neuropharmacology, uh, June 3, 2010. Paul Laurenti has done some work on caffeine at Wake Forest University. Uh, there was an ABC reporter who saw his work on it and wanted to test it out herself. So she went through his functional MRI unit here. And um, she drank one cup of coffee, and she was scanned before and after. This was her brain before caffeine. This was after. Circulation down 40%. And there's no red flags going off saying, uh, watch out, don't get into conversations with people. By the way, why do we talk about conversations? Because studies show that when you have caffeine on board, you're more likely to gossip. That is, you're more likely to share private information with someone who's not part of the problem or part of the solution to the problem. And even the NFL has caught up with this. Did you know that the National Football League is actually recommending that the only player on a National Football League team who requires an intact frontal lobe to be successful to use zero caffeine. By the way, who is that player that requires a frontal lobe to be successful? It's the quarterback. He's having to analyze the information and make a wise decision. And there's attempted murder going on all around him. And his nerves have to be very calm as he makes this decision. And uh, uh, studies show zero caffeine. They make far better decisions. 
It was Tom Brady's coach was one of the first ones to pick up on it, told Tom Brady zero caffeine. And two weeks later, his quarterback ratings started to go up significantly, and he's been on zero caffeine since. And it's kind of interesting, the linemen are told to load up with caffeine to try to sack that man. But uh, I've noticed that uh, all he has to do, you know, those linemen will be coming at him, and all he'll have to do is just make one little simple step like this, and they have no breaks, they go flying. And uh, I think part of it is due to caffeine excess. The other thing that's caffeine excess is the false starts. You know, nobody's moved, but that lineman sure thinks someone's moved, and he'll slow it down, and it'll show. Nobody moved, but he thought it was, and the caffeine excess will make you think something's happening that isn't really happening, and then the ball has to be backed up again, and everybody's upset, and, and all of that. So I think the lineman coaches might eventually catch up as well. Well, what is the frontal lobe desire for optimal function? Carbohydrates, natural carbohydrates, are used almost exclusively by the brain for optimal function. And carbohydrates are going to be your fruits, vegetables, nuts, and grains. Last um, February, uh, we, had a, um, we had an emotional intelligence summit at Weimar, um, and we had Dr. Michael Greger come and speak. He put all of the information on in regards to nutrition and mental illness, and then he also put together a presentation on nutrition and cognitive function. But he showed all of the randomized controlled trials, and it's very clear that a diet like this is going to be able to help your brain. It's actually going to help your IQ. It's also going to help your emotional intelligence as well. Sugar, however, although it's a carbohydrate, does not come out on top as far as brain function is concerned. In fact, it's been shown to impair frontal lobe functions, both students and now also in adults who aren't students. They'll make about a grade letter difference in performance. And why is that the case, if carbs are good for the brain? What happens when we eat a Sunday like this? <clears throat> our sugar spikes, and our pancreas thinks we've had a large amount of fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables. But we've just had a candy bar or a Sunday, and so it overshoots, and that blood sugar then goes down lower than it was before we ate the sugary substance. And it takes four hours for the frontal lobe to fully come back after that, even after we snack. And so that's why it can make a significant uh, difference. Um, another substance that's uh, being a, a major focus, in fact, Michael Greger mentioned this as well, arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is a pro-inflammatory molecule. Uh, I should mention I was asked to speak at a medical school recently. Uh, I won't tell you which one it was. Uh, but uh, at this medical school, I was talking about um, the effects of arachidonic acid on the brain. Uh, it actually produces inflammation. It'll make you not be able to cope as well with the usual stresses around you. And it also, of course, can even cause arthritis. If you have a reason for arthritis and you have arachidonic acid on board, you're going to have more inflammation. And in general, it just decreases your quality of life significantly. Now, in medical school, they will learn arachidonic acid blockage pathways. Why are they learning that? It's called pharmacology. And there's drugs like prednisone that can uh, block some of the effects of the arachidonic acid metabolism. And then there's non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Celebrex and all of this. And so they're learning all of these pathways to block arachidonic acid, but in the medical school, the whole audience, I said, 
I'm sure you've been learning some about arachidonic acid um, and showed them this part. Uh, well, actually, no. I, I thought I was going to show you some data on it, but I'm getting ready to show you where it's found. But I asked them, has anyone um, told you or do you know, I'm sure you've taken some basic nutrition, what foods have arachidonic acid in them? Not a single hand went up. They were not taught where arachidonic acid came from. Arachidonic acid is present in meat, eggs. It's not present. It's also present in fish. It is not present in dairy or any plant foods. And so if you're on a plant-based diet, you're going to be on an arachidonic acid-free diet, and that's as good as taking potent arthritis medicine, uh, and you don't have the side effects of all of that arthritis medicine, which, by the way, can produce some cognitive um, issues as well. Uh, they came up to me afterwards, and I was telling them about a lot of other different pathways, and they said, we've been learning select parts of this, but no one has put it together um, like you did and given us a comprehensive picture of that. And uh, that shouldn't be the case. Medical schools should really start to change in regards to their teaching of nutrition. Uh, and speaking of that, um, the medical societies themselves are catching up with this fact. There was a European journal, the most famous, um, prestigious European journal of psychiatry, um, came out recently and looked at all of the evidence in nutrition in the brain as far as mental illness is concerned. And they said the evidence is so overwhelming that if the psychiatrist does not address nutrition in the visit, it is akin to committing malpractice. Uh, because there's so much evidence that what we're putting into our bodies have to do with brain function. And, uh, uh, and so it's start, hopefully starting to change um, significantly. There is a medical school in California who actually has started advanced nutrition classes in their medical school and is, um, uh, has what's called plant-based nutrition, where they're showing all of the evidence of that. Um, and, um, and so there are other schools, I'm sure, that will pick it up. A junk food diet linked to lower IQ, no surprise here. But this was even in children. If they're on a, a diet that's your more typical American junk food diet, it's going to adversely affect their IQ significantly. And if they get into a healthier diet, their IQ will go up and it's controlled for all sorts of different elements. And then it happens the other way as well. This was an interesting study out of Great Britain. Children who uh, had their IQs measured when they were 10, they were found to be much more likely to become vegetarians by the time they were 30. A study of more than 8,000 men and women, age 30, whose IQs had been measured when they were 10, showed that the higher the IQ at age 10, the greater the odds of becoming a vegetarian. For each 15-point rise in IQ scores in the study, the likelihood of being a vegetarian rose by 38%, and it was also a controlled study for social class and education and all of that, and the link was still consistent. And then the study's authors had a nice discussion group on this. Why do high IQ kids more likely become vegetarian when they're 30? And in the discussion, they actually went back to the definition of intelligence. What is the definition of intelligence? Your capacity to do what? Learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And they said, if we look at the definition of intelligence, they're more likely to learn, they're more likely to retain the information that they learn, and they're more likely to apply it. And that's one of the reasons why high IQ people live longer. They're learning, 
They're remembering and they're applying it in their life and they're taking advantage of those types of things and um, it benefits them um, significantly. Physical exercise also helps with the brain. In fact, Dr. Um, John Reddy, who I just spoke to you about, um, from Harvard, who's coming. By the way, when I spoke to him on the phone, he was so interested in this Emotional Intelligence Summit. Uh, he, um, his wife is also coming out. She is the executive head of Entertainment Tonight out there in the East Coast, and she's giving up all of her Entertainment Tonight stuff to come out to the EQ Summit and uh, learn herself. She likes all this emotional intelligence thing. But Dr. Raddy is going to show you how certain types of physical exercise can dramatically change the brain. One of the ways that's often not talked about is another type of exercise called working with your hands. Working with one's own hands in a real-world 3D environment is imperative for full cognitive and intellectual development, said Dr. Eric Sigmund. With woodwork, metalwork, craft music, or car mechanic classes being dropped by many schools and children wanting to play computer games at home, the Western world is becoming a software instead of a screwdriver society. And this is not good. 3D learning allows young people to experience how the world works in practice, to gain an understanding of materials and processes, and make informed judgments about abstract concepts. And so, uh, uh, unfortunately, we've got a lot of 2D learning going on, computers, screens, that type of thing, but that isn't the type of learning that's going to produce the significant improvement that we're looking for as far as intelligence. It's your 3D learning that has that. And so we actually have a class in the college that I'm president of, a freshman class that's mandated for every freshman to take called Optimize Your Brain. And in that class, as part of their grade, they have to be able to do something, and uh, it's, it could be repetitive, but something for at least 20 minutes every day with working with their hands in 3D. And it's amazing what will happen to their grades um, in doing this. So it might be gardening, it might be agriculture, uh, it might be learning to play tennis, uh, it could be, in fact, if they can't think of anything else, we tell them, don't use the dishwasher, wash your dishes and your friends' dishes and everyone else's as well uh, to be able to work with your hands in 3D. Uh, those type of things actually improve the back part of the frontal lobe circulation and it improves actually our ability to even be creative. Uh, as far as the 2D aspect of things, there have been over 3,000 studies done on the effect of entertainment television and mind. Over 300 books have been written on the subject. And this tube that's in your home, if it's used for entertainment, is a frontal lobe suppressant. Uh, and it actually has been well demonstrated to increase daydreaming, decrease creative ingenuity, decrease interest in reading, decrease interest in learning, reduces discernment. It's also addictive like other frontal lobe suppressants and it reduces your sensitivity, and it increases violence um, as well. In fact, um, the more TV adolescents watch, the more likely they are to develop attention and learning problems, to do poorly in school in the long run. And the study showed that if a 14-year-old adds one hour of television a day, it increases their risk of academic failure by 100 It doubles their risk of academic failure. Um, in one um, year. And so this is significant, actually within two years, from age 14 to 16. It's one more daily hour of TV. It's the last bullet point. Double their risk of academic failure 
uh, by age 16. And of course, um, this is something that's often not talked about, thought to be harmless, uh, not really, you know, it seems to be a good babysitter, that sort of thing, but it is not something that's going to be able to create someone who can think outside the box and come up with new things. And of course, it takes away precious time for family achievement and spiritual pursuits as well. And new studies are focusing on entertainment screen time in general. Even Facebook and Instagram don't come out on top in regards to these things. In fact, social media has made us antisocial. Uh, and uh, it is, um, it's very clear that we're substituting one form of, of uh, very limited social interaction with what would be much more healthy type of social interaction when we get involved in uh, those sorts of things. Uh, this is the work of Daniel Goleman, showing that although we thought computers and tablets and smartphones would offer exciting opportunities to deepen learning through creativity, collaboration, and connection, we have found these devices can be very, what? Distracting, not only to students, but to adults. Similarly, parents complain that when students are required to complete homework assignments online, it's a challenge for students to remain on task. They go in there and they say they're doing their homework, parent comes in five minutes later, and they're not doing their homework. Someone, you know, uh, put a Facebook message on and it came up and they had to see that, and so they're getting easily distracted. And what he said is if students don't learn how to concentrate and shut out distractions, research shows they'll have a much harder time succeeding in almost every area of life. The real message is because attention is under siege more than has ever been before in human history, we have more distractions than ever before, we have to be more focused at cultivating the skills of attention. And if young students don't build up the neural circuitry that focused attention requires, they could have problems controlling their emotions and even being empathetic. Why is that the case? Because the circuitry for paying attention is identical for the circuits that manage distressing emotions. A lot of people are unaware with it. They think it's somehow a, a point of valor to be continually distracted and doing this and then changing to this and then going back to that and then being distracted and not remembering this and all of that. They think it's just, you know, cool. But in reality, if they don't learn how to focus and keep those distractions out, they are going to have problems with frontal lobe function. They're going to have problems with empathy. They're going to have problems with managing distressing emotions. He said the attentional circuitry needs to have the evidence, the experience of sustained episodes of concentration, reading the text, understanding and listening to what the teacher is saying in order to build the mental models that creates someone who is well-educated. One of the keys to success, he says, is a digital Sabbath every day, sometime when kids aren't being distracted by devices at all and are engaged in focused learning. By the way, when is the best time to have that time where you have no smartphones, uh, no iPads, no computer screens? It's actually been shown the best time to have zero is four hours before going to bed up until bedtime because the screens also play with your ability to make melatonin at night uh, and those sorts of things. So if you're going to be doing your screen time, it's better in the morning. Um, it's better um, earlier in the day. In the evening is the best time to have the digital Sabbath that he talks about that is important for building the brain. And of course, the more screen time, the less sleep as well. And then finally, music. A study of six-year-olds found that those who 
took music lessons for one year, gained more points on IQ tests than their peers. Not involved in music classes, the benefit was small, but it was seen across the spectrum of abilities in tests showing uh, in math and language and spatial skills as well. In fact, there was a recent study showing that those who are going to music schools exclusively actually do far better in higher academics. Uh, and even though they're not studying those academic things, they're just studying music. And one of the reasons is you're working with your hands in 3D, and of course when you're learning music, at least with the six-year-olds, um, there's, there's one genre that's taught all the time when you first learn music, and that is the classical music, which has beneficial aspects. Even all the rock and rollers first learn classical music, uh, and uh, uh, that type of music has some optimizing things to the brain when it's melodious, yet simple and attractive the beautiful, what we call consonant harmonies, instead of the dissonance. The dissonance is going to produce issues, particularly when it centers in on that. The straight rhythms are healthy, um, or march rhythms can also be healthy, and if the rhythm is less prominent than the melody and harmony, that also produces benefit. And if it tells a story, if you can imagine a story, or it's telling a story with the scene. And an additional benefit, if it's reverential and awe-inspiring, uh, uplifting you to something um, grander than yourself. By the way, what would be an example of this type of music? How many of you have been to Forest Lawn Glendale? A few hands have gone up. Um, there is the, um, the largest painting of the crucifixion of Christ there. And if, for those of you that haven't been there, I won't tell you what it's like because it's quite a different painting than what you might anticipate of the crucifixion. But when you walk in, the, the painting is bigger than a football field and it's covered, but when you walk in, the lights are down because they're going to spotlight different portions of it before they show you the whole picture. But uh, before the screen opens up, there is music that is played that has all seven of those characteristics. So it's really strengthening your frontal lobe. It's beautiful music, everybody likes it. It's called the Largo by Handel, and it's one of the pieces that we utilize um, in our program as well to uh, bring about uh, that more balanced brain. So in summary, take care of your frontal lobe. Protect it from mechanical injury. That is also important. Your brain is actually a pretty soft substance and it needs protection. Um, and uh, many people, you know, this is one of my real pet peeves with some of these sports that are not very protective of the brain. I'm really alarmed at how UFC and those type of sports has dramatically increased. You know what the studies show on the, U the ultimate fighting championships? There's a one out of three chance that one or both fighters within 15 minutes are going to have a concussion. And that, those concussions produce post-traumatic brain injury. And they increase their risk of depression and anxiety and all sorts of issues. I was really proud a few um, months ago uh, there are other sports um, that, where there's high rates of concussion. Um, speaking of National Football League, that's one of them. Uh, but I was uh, very gratified to see a linebacker in Buffalo who was offered a multi-million dollar contract after his rookie season, and he turned it down and he walked away and he said, I'm done with football. And they said, why? You're, you're healthy, you're doing well, you've got this multi-million dollar contract. And he said, I have studied what um, traumatic brain injury does. 
and I realize the risk is extremely high in this sport, and even though I don't know how I'm going to make my money, I want to have a good brain for the rest of my life. And so he thanked everyone. He was very polite about it, but he thanked everyone who helped him out and got him to where he was at, but um, uh, he left football. And that's a wise individual. Uh, we need to be protecting. This is who we are up here. We need to be protecting this area of our brain, and we need to um, be safe um, in regards to it. We must supply it with good oxygen. Just um, you know, exercise will do this. Deep breathing will do it. Give good nutrition. We talked a little bit about this. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about it tomorrow. You'll want to hear some of the latest on nutrition in the brain tomorrow. Get adequate sunlight. Sunlight through the eyes actually helps serotonin and helps the frontal lobe. Uh, control the inputs over what we're seeing and hearing. Staying away from things that are going to suppress the frontal lobe. Just like a muscle, if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. And so exercise our frontal lobe. We can exercise it actually through spiritual material and abstract reasoning and proverbs. Work with your hands in 3D on a regular basis. And then have regular circadian and circuseptin rhythms. Uh, these are your weekly cycles and your daily cycles, which we may have a chance to get into more tomorrow. Well, I'll close with ancient words from the book of Proverbs itself. Wisdom is better than rubies. And all that the things that, might, that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Solomon had a lot of rubies, more so than anyone else, actually, since Solomon was around. Forbes magazine recently analyzed him, said there's no one that's been wealthier, going back all the way through and, and, and took away to Solomon. Solomon was the wealthiest as far as having the most money as part of the percentage of the global monetary supply is how they measured it. Uh, but he tells you there's something more important than all the money in the world, and that is wisdom. And he says, well, no matter what your desire is, you might think you have desires that are very useful and helpful, but your desires are actually out of proportion if wisdom is not your top desire. And the good news is our brains can change. We've all come here with wonderful brains and wonderful abilities for our brains to change. And so anything that appears like a sacrifice on the front end to help our wisdom is not going to be a sacrifice at all. It's going to increase our happiness, it will increase our fulfillment, and it will increase our success in life. So I would encourage you to review your life, see what you can do differently to help this area of your brain, because indeed, um, there's nothing else that can compare um, to it. Questions or comments about what I've presented here this evening? Yes.